Hi everyone, it's the Shagilola Salami Show. It's a podcast show set in a virtual cafe, and I'm your host, Shagilola Salami. If this is your first time listening to the show, um, it's probably not the typical type of podcast show that you've listened to. So I'm sitting here in a virtual cafe, um, sipping delicious virtual drinks with my guests, and we hope that at the end of Today's episode, you'll learn something, you'll be motivated, be inspired, or possibly even discover a new book, right? I hope that at the end of this episode, you will go away with something and think, oh, wow, that was a really beneficial episode and was worth the time you take in listening to the show. Um, so it is a nice, lovely, sunny day in London, and I'm just here sipping my virtual hot chocolate. So who have I got here in the virtual cafe with me? Good morning, good day. My name is Lisa Boucher. I'm the author of Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture. And I'm here to talk about and help people live a a more alcohol-free life or maybe drink a little less and the benefits of how great that really is when you try it, when how much better you will feel how much better your relationships can be. So that's what I like to focus on is the benefits of drinking less. Oh, cool. Um, well, it is a virtual cafe. Um, what can I offer you? Let's start with that first. I am partial to green tea and I like, I love one that I can get here and it's green tea with a coconut flavor and it's just got a little bit of a nutty taste, but it's clean. And I love it. So I'll take one of those. Okay. Okay. We can do that. It is a virtue cafe. And I always like to think that my cafe is very futuristic, that you can literally get any type of drink or snack you would like um, in here. So whilst we're letting the virtual, you know, Star Trek cafe do its business, um, you know, so tell me more about, you know, yourself and what you do. I do, I help women. I help men. I mostly I do help more women than men, probably just because it makes more sense that way. Um, but I have really been reaching out through my work, through blogging, through a Facebook page. There are a lot of hurting people in the world. And I'm also a registered nurse. So I see a lot of lives that aren't going too well, coming into the hospital, coming into the psych ward. And too often behind all of this depression, anxiety, accidents, misery is the booze. Um, let's just face it. We live in a very boozy world, a boozy culture, I know over in the UK, the drinking is off the chain. Here in the United States, the drinking is off the chain. It's just become so much a part of culture, society, that a lot of people are getting into a lot of trouble, meaning in personal sort of trouble. I know I quit drinking. I've been sober. It'll be 30 years on the 22nd of June. So I've been down that road and my life is so much better and my relationships are so much better. And I was able to finally finish things and do things. And I didn't start writing um, until I got sober. So I think we find our gifts when we can put down the drink. I didn't realize how much time I wasted 
going to bars and cafes, um, talking about all the things that I wanted to do, thought I might do, but I never really did because I was too busy partying and socializing and drinking. It, it takes up an awful lot of time. So I like to help people, if your life isn't working in any kind of way, then I like to say, and before you run to the doctor, before you go think you need antidepressants, look at the alcohol, are you drinking? And if you're drinking and you can't cut down on the alcohol, which is a depressant, um, before you go get antidepressants, then maybe alcohol is the problem. And if that is addressed, um, it just saves people a lot of wasted years trying to find what's wrong, what's broken my life. And, and people tend to look outwardly and blame their job or their relationships or their spouse or their lover, whatever the case may be. And it's usually an inside job. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So it's... Uh, there's just a lot of hurting people and we don't have to hurt if we can find the courage to be brave and look at the truth. I know I didn't get sober and change my life until I was able to look at the truth about my life, my drinking, how I felt, why was I self-medicating, all of that. I mean, we could go back and I think anybody, if you go back, I, I always say most addiction starts in childhood and a lot of people carry a lot of wounds from their childhood, whether it be they grew up in an unstable home or they were abandoned by a parent or had a parent like I did that was an alcoholic or an addiction. They're just not able to parent well. So I feel like I grew up with in a lot of fear, wasn't really nurtured that well, and you become kind of a scrappy little kid, which is not all bad, but um, some people, it seems some kids are, are fragile flowers and they just can't do it, and so they end up in a lot of distress or they, they manage like I did, but you stuff a lot, and then you end up turning to addiction or something yourself to self-medicate and that become that became a coping skill hmm. yeah. so well, that's that's quite interesting so I know that you mentioned you know that one of your parents um, was an alcoholic and you know you've been sober for a while so how did your journey from how you started how did you get to where you are now what were the key things that helped you get to this positive place? Well, I think the biggest key was that self-honesty. I could have stayed in denial because I saw my mother, let's back up. My mother was a beautiful, wonderful, lovely woman. And she ended up addicted to benzos that were prescribed by a doctor, which escalated to an alcohol habit where she became, she could not function. So that was what I remember mostly as a child, is a mother who was beautiful and wonderful, but could barely function most of the time. 
So I think what, what helped me get to where I am is being honest. And when I did learn a little bit, and this is why I think podcasts and all of the information that's out there about alcoholism addiction is so important because if people could understand that you do not have to hit these low bottoms like my mother did. I call myself a high bottom. I was in my late 20s. And because I had a little bit of information about alcoholism and addiction, I was able to recognize that my pattern was changing. My drinking was progressing from perhaps weekends to now I'm drinking weekends and maybe a night or two during the week. And that was progressing to maybe three nights during the week and on the weekends. So when you're drinking three, four, five, six days a week, your problem is you're, that that is not really social drinking. Social drinkers can take it or leave it. Social drinkers don't drink six days a week and just because they're with other people who drink like that and you're at a bar being social, they call it social drinker drinking, but it's really more problematic at that point. Um, and I didn't realize until I sobered up that not everybody drinks six days a week, but most of the alcoholics and the uh, people who are abusing alcohol do. So that right there, when I started to get honest about what was I really doing, how much time did I really spend drinking, when I started to crave a drink in the middle of the day, when I started to drink at lunchtime, I was working at marketing in the time back in the day. Um, when I was a flight attendant and I started to steal the little mini bottles off the plane and so I'd have a stash in my bag in case we went to a hotel that the bar wasn't open or closed or they didn't have one, God forbid. So these little things that I was doing, I was aware of them, that this is not necessarily normal and there is an escalation. So self-honesty if we you know it's a disease of denial but if you can really just take a moment or if you have those little voices in your head going i wonder if i drink too much if you start to wonder if you drink too much you do social drinkers don't have that angst or those little conversations in their own mind like questioning their behavior so i think our intuitive self already knows when we're veering off the track and 90 percent of people maybe even higher won't listen so listen to your intuitive self when, when you find yourself going something isn't right with me and i always tell people before you go the doctor route or the medication route Take a look at your drinking. If you're, if you're drinking too much, if you're drinking every day, if you, have, if you find that you're depressed and you're drinking a depressant, there's your solution right there is to stop consuming and ingesting a depressant, find and learn other healthy coping skills, and see if your life doesn't start to improve. And for so many people, even just with being without alcohol for a week or two, if they're not severely addicted and don't need medical detox, um, they find that their lives start to get better because they're not 
ingesting a depressant. They're not isolating. A lot of problem drinkers and alcoholics tend to isolate. And that can be very um, depressing to not have relationships and connections. Addiction is a lot about the lack of connections and why people drink. Why do people drink? They drink to self-medicate. They don't want to feel whatever it is that they're trying to stop or um, things that maybe, like I said earlier, that have happened to them in childhood that they've never healed from. So they're just stopping it. And there is just that hole in the soul that people try to fill up with drugs, sex, alcohol, food, gambling. Addiction can take many, many forms and wear many outfits. So it doesn't really matter what addiction somebody has. It matters what it does to their life. So that's what I... I was going to ask you a question, but I think you sort of answered it in one of your comments right because when you were saying a lot of stuff I was just laughing in my mind right because I'm like because I actually know let me move back so I think this episode is actually very what's the word it was almost like it was meant to happen because I recently read something online and I don't know where it is right literally on this topic right where it was saying that in the UK we drink considerably more than in the US, right? That the amount of alcohol that people consume in the UK would be seen as a medical problem in the US. Have, have you ever found that? Well, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of heavy drinking here too. So maybe because we have a little more sunshine in places that, you know, depending on where you live in the country over here, some lifestyles, like I'll give you an example. If you live in Chicago, up there by the lake, the summers are beautiful, but it is bitterly cold and windy in the winter. So there's not much to do in Chicago, but go, go to bars, clubs, eat, drink. And that's what people do. And same with um, other parts of the country that are very cold. I know out in Wyoming and Montana, they're not heavily populated states, but the people out there during the winter, a lot of them drink a lot because there's just not a lot to do. So I know the UK though, I can't answer why they have a higher, a high rate of alcoholism. I think that Europe in general has one of the highest rates of alcoholism in the world. Um, We are not far behind. Um, It is just a problem everywhere. And much of it goes back to the alcohol companies are spending billions with a B of dollars convincing people that it's something they need in order to live a great life. And they have really heavily targeted women, especially, and they're, it's working. The wine memes that are endless, the, what did I see? Oh my God, we have lawmakers here in Ohio that are trying to introduce bills to allow ice cream to be infused with alcohol. That's in Ohio, in Springfield, Ohio, two lawmakers. I think it's absurd. Um, 
children are going to get a hold of that. We know they will. How could they not? Kids are drawn to ice cream and candy and popsicles. Yeah. They've got Jack Daniel and Coke popsicles. Now they're, they've got 5% alcohol in these brightly, beautifully cute yogurt cups. It's ridiculous. So we are getting people hooked earlier and earlier and earlier. And children that take sips of their parents' alcohol have a four times higher rate of alcoholism. So this might explain why Europe has such a, a much higher rate, because here in the U.S., everybody, they like to say, oh, Europe does not have an alcohol problem because they teach their kids how to drink normally because it's a part of life in Greece and Italy and probably in, in England. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's just a fallacy. That is not true. Europe has the highest rate of alcoholism, maybe for that reason. I'm not going to take that to the bank because I don't know that for a fact. But I do know for a fact uh, that alcoholism, when we give it to kids early in life, it's usually all bad. They end up becoming addicted to alcohol because really there's a physiologic reason for that and our brains react to the dopamine that hit that we get from alcohol drugs i mean our brains are are given dopamine hits with love with exercise with running with nurturing relationships but it's nowhere the amount that you're going to get from an artificial substance like alcohol drugs or something like that so that is really the, the brain science behind why people chase that. So if you're a young child and you're getting this little dopamine hit and you happen to be genetically predispos predisposed to alcoholism like I was, you're going to chase that. I mean, it's like flipping on a light switch and not always for everybody. I've talked to people that said they knew from their first drink that they had an alcohol problem. For most of us, it creeps up more slowly. I can't say that the first time I had a, a beer that I was addicted. I, I can't say that at all, and I don't believe that I was. I, I think it took a number of years for that light switch to be turned on for me. And then I think I quit two years after the light switch was turned on. I felt uh, somewhere in my later 20s where my drinking started to really escalate and I did not allow it to stay in that state for too many years, thank God. Um, because by the time I was in my late 20s, then I had decided I've had enough. I'm done. This is not helping me. It's not helping. My decision-making was... <laughs> was crazy at best. Um, the things that I thought to do that just made no sense at all. And, and, you know, you think, oh, I'm, I'm making perfect sense. And you don't realize till you sober up how wet your brain was. And you were making all sorts of crazy decisions that made no sense. So, yeah, I mean, what you say made sense, but then again, so now, even though I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm an advocate for alcohol, I am not because I don't even drink myself. But I will say this from the point of view of friends that I know who drink, right? Like one of my friends, he can drink a lot, right? But then he's got a high alcohol threshold, right? Like he can handle his drink very well. Right. Um, so do you think it's, and you mentioned genetic dis 
predisposition. And again, this is not a conversation that, you know, a topic that I've actually ever researched on. But, you know, do you think that actually that definitely that, oh, let me see how am I going to say it? Like some people can handle their drinks better than others. And it's not necessarily the quantity of alcohol that you're consuming. Even though in the UK, we do have legal recommendations for how much alcohol men and women should be consuming, but should it also be down to how it makes you feel, right? And I think- Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, because from a medical point of view, right, there are some people who would take one medication and have no side effect from it whatsoever. And then they're going to be, there's going to be someone else who would take exactly the same medication and the same dose and they get all the side effects. Well, that is true, but still here's the, I know, I know what you're saying. There's a lot of people that they can drink a ton and they seem to not be adversely affected. However, that the reality is your body, that is called you're building a tolerance. So maybe that person just has a high tolerance, but eventually as the damage to the liver happens, that, that tolerance is going to reverse. So maybe in their 30s and 40s, they can handle this vast amount of alcohol and they don't seem particularly drunk or whatever. But what usually happens is it catches up to that person sometime in their life with liver disease, heart disease, some other physical um, adverse with pancreatitis, with pancreatic cancer. So I don't think, even though people can drink a lot, I don't believe in most cases they get to go through life unscathed by it. Now, there is always those outliers where someone will be 85 and say, I drank and smoked my whole life and here I am and I'm fine. And that happens too. We don't know. But I have seen people that do well for decades and then all of a sudden their health just falls apart. So I think we're playing with fire, um, but it is true. I know for me, I love that you made that distinction because I think that's a very important distinction. People tend to only look at quantity and say, well, I'm not drinking 10 drinks a day, so I don't have a problem. Well, you might, because how does that alcohol affect you? I could maybe have five drinks one time and I would be fine. I can have those five drinks the next day and I'm acting like a crazy maniac. So it was, I couldn't really predict how that alcohol was going to affect me. So it doesn't matter. Like you said, some people can drink quite heavily and they don't seem to be impacted behaviorally. Others, you give them a couple drinks and they're staggering around and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't handle anymore. So alcoholism, addiction, alcohol abuse, we can't just look at quantity. We have to look how does it impact that person? How does it impact their decisions? How does do people around them? If you have people around you, even if you only drink a couple drinks saying, hey, behavior changes when you drink and I don't like being around you, that's problematic. I don't care if that person only drinks two drinks. It's problematic if their behavior changes. So these are the little things that people maybe aren't aware of 
And that's why I'm glad that we're talking about this because it's not just about the quantity, it's what it does to a person. And that high tolerance that you have today, that might last for another 10 years, but eventually it won't. And eventually you'll find that person will maybe start to, there's a lot of dementia that goes around along with alcohol abuse. So when people are in their 60s and they become very forgetful and they're still drinking heavily, a lot of them, the, the nursing home, the old age homes, I don't know if you have them over there filled up like we do here, but most of them are because of alcohol abuse and their minds started to go before their bodies did. So it's a crapshoot either way. Either your body's going to go or your mind, but very few people can drink with impunity and not have consequences at some point. Yeah, that makes sense. So for your book, did you write it just based on personal experience or did you get like, you know, professional interviews to just give a professional's point of view? I have a number, many voices. Um, professional, what does that mean? Here, here's my take on that. I have a lot of doctors and nurses and a chemical dependency person in the book. But these are all people who were in their own addiction. And this is what's so shocking. I did a whole chapter, doctors, nurses, (coughs) care. None of these doctors, none of these nurses understood addiction until it happened to them. So this is a huge problem here in America. People go to the hospital, to doctors to get help with their addiction, and they're not getting the right kind of help because most of the doctors and nurses, and I'm still working, so I see it, they don't understand addiction, and therefore people are not getting the right kind of help. What they do is throw medication at the problem. Lives continue to spiral out of control. It doesn't work. So I wrote, Raising the Bottom is memoirish in my mother's, um, in my childhood. It, it's tragic. It's a montage of, of tragic of tragedy and comedic um, episodes and all of that stuff. Um, very engaging. I think people will like it. It's kind of funny. Um, but then I found, after my mother had passed away before I wrote the book, but I found a, a CD where she was giving a, a, a speaking to a group about her addiction and how she recovered. Because don't forget, she had this horribly devastating low bottom. Um, so that is a very powerful story in the book. Um, I just got a five-star review from um, Chancellor about... And they thought her story was one of the most poignant ones. I also have 10 stories in the back of the book from other people. So like I said, I wanted to focus on the person who is functioning in their life, the functional alcoholics, because there's still a stigma and people still tend to believe if you're not the person on the six o'clock news or your life isn't completely destroyed that you have a problem. So I sought out more high bottom people like I was these, like I said, it was a surgeon who came home from work and started drinking every day. I also did a chapter to what your kids say about you and your drinking. And her daughter wrote a very heartfelt letter about how she felt about her surgeon mother who appeared to be functioning beautifully to the rest of the world. But the, her, the daughter and the brother were quite devastated by their mother's drinking. 
So I wanted to give kids a voice. I think it's, uh, we don't, all this wine time and mommy needs a drink is extremely selfish. And we don't think of how that affects the children on the backside. Because I've been on every side of this. I was a child of an alcoholic, an alcoholic myself. Now I'm in recovery, working in healthcare. I've got siblings that are in addiction. My first husband was an alcoholic. I have been like a tea bag in addiction my entire life. So I get it in, in a way that I don't think you're going to find too many people that have a 360 perspective. I really don't. From every angle, it has been in my face. And I can spot the alcoholic almost immediately from across the room. There's just a nuance about it, a feeling about it. Um, I can tell when children are going to end up. You, there's just a way. I've just been around it so much. So I talk about my experience and that is what makes an expert not because some person went and sat through a few classes and now has a degree this is part of the problem of why people are not getting help we've got people just because they went and read in a book about addiction and then they got their phd and now they say they're an expert well excuse me you're not an expert have you spent any time talking with addicts and alcoholics to hear their stories and get a real personal understanding of this disease. So that's where I feel we're lacking. Um, doctors don't, they read in a book, oh, here, use Suboxone and this will help person, somebody recover from their opioid addiction. Actually, no, it's not. It can be an adjunct in a comprehensive treatment plan, but we have to address the physical, and that's what some of these Suboxone and Subutex, they address the physical. Now, what are we going to do about the mental, the spiritual, the social components? And this is where people that just because you read it in a book and have a degree, if you don't understand that healing in addiction is a four-part psychosocial, bio, spiritual, you have to address all four. And the doctors don't. They address one aspect. And this is why people aren't getting better. And um, so I talk about all of this in the book. And I give just real first-hand stories. Instead of psychobabble, you get people who have been there, done that, and how we're recovering, how we're moving on with our lives, what it took to do that, and how beautiful it is on the other side. Um, I think, here, here's a great way to know if you have a drinking problem. If the thought of stopping drinking, if your first thought is, oh my God, I'll never have any more fun, Bingo, you might qualify because that's just about when what I've been talking to people in recovery now for, like I said, almost 30 years. And we joke and laugh about it because for almost all of us, the thought of quitting drinking was horrifying. We broke down into a puddle of tears. And most of us, our first thought is, oh my God, I'll never have any fun. That seems to be a common denominator right there. So, you're not going to learn that in medical school. No, no. So um, your book, what does, so what are the main, so if we're going to take five things people can take away from reading your book, what would those five things be? Uh, number one, you do not have to hit a low bottom. 
Number two, what does earlier alcoholism look like? So you can help yourself, if you'll be honest, and really take a, if you can be honest with yourself, you can catch it before, picture alcoholism on like a bell curve. I believe I caught mine when I was just gonna head down um, the slope where many people don't find it until you know they've crashed at the end of the, the bottom of the hill. So that would be the second thing. The third thing would be what it really looks like in a functional alcoholic's lives. Number four would be what is the solution? My solution was the 12 steps. Some people are like, oh my God, I don't want to hear that. But let's just keep it real. I'm from my experience of 30 years and working in healthcare. I have not seen anything else work as well. I know there are other recovery programs, and if that works for you, God bless. But let's keep in mind, it, the book you'll also learn, fifth, what is recovery? There is a vast difference between someone who says, I'm not drinking anymore, and that's all they do. And they stay angry, resentful, miserable, and they're just mad at the world. That is not recovery. Recovery is you find a way to live happily at peace with not drinking. It becomes where you don't even think about drinking, maybe only once in a while. If I'm, when my son got married, I had the thought, gee, it would be nice to be able to do a champagne toast like everybody else. But it was only a thought because I know for me, it's not going to end at that toast. And then it's going to set the ball rolling and I'm going to want to just keep drinking. So thoughts like that come up, but they don't define my life. I have the thought, I say, okay, well, I can't do that. And I move on. Um, recovery also is about helping others. I have made a vocation, I guess, more or less, because I'm, I'm getting ready to start another book about how to live a more peaceful life. Um, I have found how to live peacefully, alcohol-free, and it's so much more about living than drinking. So raising the bottom was to help people with getting past, getting over the, the alcoholism, if alcohol abuse, whatever. This next book is going to be how to just live a more peaceful life. Um, I think people want to be happy. People want to live. If you can live with a quiet mind and a peaceful heart, isn't that the goal of life in many, many ways that we can enjoy, enjoy our, our families, our friends, and not have to self-medicate, be passed out, be angry? So to me, recovery is very different from being just dry. I didn't want to be dry. I didn't want to be angry. And if that's how recovery was going to be, you might as well drink. But I'm here to tell you, it's not. And I found my gifts. Um, I finished my degrees, English degree, then my nursing degree, all of this in sobriety. Couldn't seem to get it together early on. I had been in, in and out of college for 10 years and I couldn't seem to finish. And I think it was because obviously my drinking and, and partying was far more important, important to me than finishing my education. So I did all of that in sobriety. I found out who I am in sobriety. So the book, I'm getting testimonials from people all over the country and some in the UK. I've been doing quite a few podcasts. Um, and they are saying it is, it, it, 
I'm not going to make the promise that you're going to read Raising the Bottom and you're going to change your life, although some people have. But I will tell you, I'm hearing from so many people. It has given them food for thought. Maybe it has planted a seed. Maybe they won't do anything about it for another two years, three years, five years. But you know what? The seed has been planted and they now know where to go. And that has happened with the people that are contacting me. Some read the book maybe two years ago when it came out in 2017. And just now they're reaching out. They said they read it it gnawed at them, it stayed with them, and now they're ready to take the leap. They want to quit drinking. So I say it's a win-win, um, and if you don't have a problem, it's still a great book because I'm sure you know somebody who does. We all have that friend, that sibling, that uh, parent, or that coworker who is suffering. And I know one woman, she did. She, she Once she um, was more open, she had the book sitting on her desk at work, and her coworker then opened up to her and is now getting help. So that is really cool to hear these kinds of stories. Um, we all need a helping hand, and I hope you grab your copy and really read it and give it then to that friend or that person who you know who is suffering. It could change their life. I'm not saying it well, there are no guarantees, but it is helping many. Um, and that's all that you can do is hope that it will help even one person. It's been worth it. Yes. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure um, chatting with you on the show. And I hope that, you know, someone who's listened will be able to, like you say, you know, either help themselves or help someone, you know, who is in dire need um, of help. Um, do you have a website, you know, or are you on Twitter if anyone would like to contact Absolutely. you? Raisingthebottom.com. I'm on Facebook. I also have a sober group for women, um, Sobriety, the Benefits of a Sober Life. That's a separate little closed group page that I just started not all that long ago, but that was only for women. But please come join us if you're on the fence about quitting drinking. It's a great, safe place. Twitter, El Boucher, author, um, Facebook at Raising the Bottom. So on, I'm also on Instagram at Raising the Bottom. Fabulous. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of today's episode of the Shegilola Salami Show, and we'll catch you again next week. Um, if you've got a minute, I would really appreciate it if you could review the show, share it with your friends, because like I said, you never know who you would be helping. Until next time, it is the Shegilola Salami Show. Bye now.